Welcome, everyone, to the May 2023 edition of the Flight Test Safety Podcast. I am your host, Art Tomasetti. I want to start out this episode by saying thanks to everyone who helped to make our flight test safety workshop that took place in Wichita, Kansas earlier this month a success. We had a pretty full three days between the tutorial on STPA, our tour of the Textron Aviation Flight Line, and two days of really amazing technical presentations. Now, like last year, at the beginning, I shared with the attendees what I hoped they would walk away with from the event, and that was in the form of the five A's. The first, acquire. Acquire some new knowledge, new idea, new way of doing things. Number two, adopt what you acquire and bring it back with you and put it to use. Number three, adapt it to fit to your organization, your program, or your team. Number four, assess how it's doing. And finally, number five, make adjustments based on that assessment to get the most out of that thing you acquired at the workshop. Now, I feel comfortable saying the event was a success thanks to our team led by Stu Rogerson that planned and executed the event, our sponsors who enabled the event to take place, our presenters who took the time and put forth the effort to share their experiences and knowledge, and of course, to all of those who attended. A lot of great things came from this event, and I will share one of those with you next month. Now, I don't want to give too much away, but next month's episode will be the largest group of interviewees ever attempted for this podcast. And I'll have to do a little bit of research, but maybe for any podcast in history. You'll be able to find videocasts of the presentations on our website, www.flighttestsafety.org, very soon. And, And I should point out, the last day had some particularly interesting titles, like completing the Kessel Run in 10 parsecs, which focused on emerging propulsion technologies. And another that was called Automation Forget It, which talked about using the force to collect the right data at the right time. Now, these may sound a little unusual, but then again, it was May the 4th. But this month, we're going to finish our discussion with Ken Katz about flight test lessons learned from the B-1 program. If you missed part one, you will definitely want to give that a listen. But let's pick up where we left off last month with our guest, Ken Katz. All right, so let's move on. Another thing you wanted to cover was program concurrency. Well, I want to talk about program concurrency and and wise use of test assets. This is not really a safety function per se. It's more uh, flight test and program management, but I think it's, it's relevant to the audience of the podcast there. You know, the B1A was the original version of the B1. It was first flew in 1974, production was canceled in 1977, and there were four test aircraft that were built. And then the program was resurrected in 1981 as the B1B, and that's a very complicated story, which we're not going to go into here. But the the B1, was the resurrection of the B1 was premised that we needed an airplane quickly. And... So you're talking about a program restart in 1981, first flight of the B-1B in 1984, and IOC in 1986. That's only five years from program restart to IOC. Compare that with the F-35 or the B-21 or something like that, and that's fast. Right, yes. So admittedly, one of the reasons why it was fast is because they were building on the on the results of the B1A program. But even the B1A program had been fast. I mean, they awarded the contract in 1970, and they first flew in 1974. The the when you have that kind of very aggressive timeline, it requires a high degree of program concurrency between development, test, production, and operational service. Those are not serial things anymore. 
those become largely parallel things. And and what that meant for the B-1B combined test force at Edwards Air Force Base is that they only got B-1B number one at, the, at, at first. You would expect that, the, you know, a, a combined test force at Edwards might get, you know, three, four, five, six airplanes. Mm-hmm. But they had one. And the reason why they only had one was because aircraft two and follow-on um, had to go out to the, the main operating bases, the operating command, because they needed to start bed down, they needed to start air crew and maintainer training. If they didn't do that, they weren't going to be ready for IOC in 1986. Right. So the next aircraft that Edwards actually got were, was B-1B number 9 and B-1B number 28, but they came later, and they really had exactly one B-1B during this critical phase of the program in 1984 and 85. And they had an awful lot of testing to accomplish. So how do you handle that big difference between the test needs and the test assets? Um, I think that the program made a lot of very clever and resourceful choices, and I want to talk about what they were. Um, But you have to start off with an analysis, which is if you only have one test aircraft and you say, man, we probably need five, but I've got one. So you start to say, what other assets are available what tests really need an actual B-1? What can you use using other assets? And, and this is how it worked out on the B-1B uh, program, which I think is sort of interesting ideas if you're thinking about another program. B-1A and B-1-3, B-1A number one and number three were occasionally used as ground test assets in various ways. They never flew as part of the B-1B program. B-1A number two became a flying test bed for the B-1B. It it had a B-1B flight control system. Um, It got B-1B bomb bay doors, which were now composite, so they did weapons bay, vibration and acoustics. They did store separation. B-1A number four was fitted with the complete B-1 offensive and defensive avionics system, so it became the flying test bed for those systems. Westinghouse, which was the uh, offensive radar system contractor, that would be north of Grumman today, fitted out a BAC-111 airliner uh, as a flying test bed for the radar. And then there was a, a, a big facility that was built at Edwards called IFAST, which was the Integration Facility for Avionic System Testing. It was basically an elaborate systems integration lab, and the B-1B program used that extensively. So when you use a lab like IFAST, you have to simulate the dynamic flight environment. And we know that's never, you know, perfect fidelity with the real world. But IFAST has its advantages. It doesn't burn fuel. You don't have to cancel a test because you got a broken or grounded airplane, and it wasn't affected by bad weather. Not that there's that much bad weather at Edwards. Right. (laughs) But, um, you know, between the two B-1As, the BAC-111 and IFAST, you had the equivalent of four extra test aircraft. And, um, you know, during that critical period of 1984 to, to 1985, when there was actually only one B-1B flight test aircraft, to go from one aircraft to the equivalent of five aircraft by being resourceful and using these other things, you know, that's, uh, I, think, I think that was very good program management. Right. And, and meanwhile, they could, uh, they could send the rest of those aircraft out to the, the operating command, strategic air command, and, and they could start getting ready to go operational. So I think the lesson learned is that if you have a thorough understanding of test requirements and you can be resourceful in other assets, you can compensate for a shortage of test aircraft. 
Right. So not exactly do more with less, do more with different or other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the, that's, that's, I love the way you put that. I, 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 I only am sorry that I didn't think that <laughs> at the time. No, that, that's exactly right. Right. Okay, uh, so you mentioned uh, before in your first point uh, about a mishap, and I know that was one of the points you wanted to cover. Um, talk about some of the lessons that came out of that. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting case, and I think there's a lot of things that we that are relevant to today. Um, as we discussed, B1A was number two was fitted with the B1B flight control system, and on 29 August 1984, there was a flight 2-127, which was a minimum controllable airspeed test using B1A number two. The test point was really the key test point was you put engine number four to idle, you put one to three to uh, you know max. And then you did a simulated go-around maneuver at 6,000 MSL, which, of course, Edwards is only 3,500 AGL. So that's, uh, that's an exciting maneuver reasonably close to the ground. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that the B-1, because it's a long airplane and fuel, you have fuel along most of the fuselage. Um, it has a dual fuel CG management system because otherwise, um, you know, controlling the the uh, CG would basically require a, you know, a full-time flight engineer on board, which the airplane doesn't have. And normally that system, which is a redundant digital system, is in an automatic mode. So you, so you just basically say, you control CG for me. But for the purpose of this test, it was put in a manual mode so you could set the CG to what you needed to meet the test point. That's the first thing to keep in mind with the tale that I'm about to tell. The other thing to keep in mind is that the allowable CG of the B-1 varies considerably based on wind sweep angle. Well, it's because the wings are full of fuel and they've got a lot of mass and because also when you sweep the wings, the center of lift changes. Right. So, you know, the, the test, this, this was a, a flight that had a lot of different tests and test 4.14 was having the CG at 45 degrees mean aerodynamic cord, which is to say fairly far back. The wings were swept back at 55 degrees. That's not all the way, but it's close to all the way. And you had a clean airplane, flaps up, slats retracted, landing gear up. And, and they did that test point twice. The first, the first time wasn't quite what they wanted, so they tried it again. And, they, and you know, they were busy looking over the data saying, that looks good. While the people on the ground were looking over the data to verify that test point 14 was done right, they were, the, the air crew was setting up for test point 15. Now, this was a, really a total change of every parameter because CG went to 21% MAC, so you move the CG forward. The wings swept forward to 15 degrees, and, and now you had a dirty airplane. Flaps down, slats extended, landing gear down. And, and while they were configuring the airplane, transitioning between point 14 and point 15, there was a loss of aircraft control um, uh, after the airplane kind of floundered around early out of control, the uh, pilot uh, command an ejection. And it's worth noting that the first three B1As did not have ejection seats. They had an ejection capsule with crew ejected collectively. Right. Um, an ejection capsule parachute problem caused a, a, a hard uh, nose-first landing instead of an intended soft landing at a level attitude. And the Rockwell International test pilot, a guy named Doug Benefield, who was very well known in the profession, he was killed on impact. 
the Air Force test pilot and the Air Force flight test engineer were seriously injured. I mean, it was it was a bad accident. Of course, right. the airplane was completely destroyed. So, what can we see from this accident? Um, the primary cause of the mishap was that the air crew didn't set the CG uh, for test point 15 configuration forward from 45% mean aerodynamic cord to 21% mean aerodynamic cord before changing the wind sweep angle. But if you stop at that primary cause, you really don't understand what happened here. So I want to talk about some of the contributory factors. Sure. The first contributory factor is the test cards. The test card specified the aircraft configuration, including the CG for test points 14, and they uh, uh, specified it for 15. But what they didn't do was specify the order of the multiple required changes. Hmm. So they didn't say, first move the CG up, then move the wings up. So you could move the wings up, and then you would say, we'll get to the CG. Well, that's a bad combination. You just put yourself in a highly unstable configuration. Right. Now, compounding that major mistake was that you had a full authority fly-by-wire system. Um, if I'm flying my mighty Piper Archer, and uh, all of a sudden I have a, a, a very strong FCG position, I feel it. But if you're flying a you know 100% fly-by-wire, 100% authority fly-by-wire aircraft, the fly-by-wire system masks that stuff. Right. You don't get the control feeling. So if you will, that was uh, right against them. Compounding that was that there had been a history of nuisance CG warnings, and the air crew um, had. Uh, was air crews were getting in the habit of ignoring nuisance CG warnings. Alas, this was not a nuisance warning. Yeah. And then, compounding that, the mission control team was focused on the last test point. As I said, you know, they, we, they had to fly it a second time, so they wanted to make sure that the data was good. And they were getting set up for the next test point, and no one was paying attention to the transition between them. Right. So... You know, we have a, a theory in aviation that mishaps are caused by chains of error. They're rarely caused by a single mistake. You know, in some cases, people call this the Swiss cheese theory of, of mishaps, yeah. where all the holes have to line up. Right. So if the team, both the, the air crew and the people on the ground, can break that chain, then you can prevent the mishap. Now, I maintain that this mishap, which was 38 years ago, um, was not peculiar to the situation of 38 years ago, but I think that you could have a very similar mishap today or tomorrow. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's the reason that at every one of our get-togethers and our symposia, where we talk about lessons learned, um, very often from year to year, they sound familiar. Yeah, I mean, I know that at Edwards, you know, when whenever we planned a program out, we had to go up to the safety office and pull out lessons learned from previous programs. Right. And I think that's a fantastic thing. So here's some very specific lessons learned here. I think that test cards need to specify the order of changes when there are multiple configuration changes between test points. I think that the second thing is that we need to be aware of desensitization, desensitization and nuisance warnings. And that's actually much easier said than done because the nature of these immature systems is that they generate lots of nuisance warnings in the development phase. But that can be very dangerous. And I think another thing is that transitions between test points need as much attention and risk management as the test points themselves. 
this is kind of another variation on the theme that we really focus on test heavily, but yet we've had lots of you know, prototype type aircraft that have been destroyed in air shows and demonstrations. Uh, it's, it's not always the really risky test points that are the most dangerous parts of a flight. Right. Well, and, and Ken, like every one of those lessons you just rattled off, um, I can replace B1A with another airplane, and that's just in my limited aviation experience. And in some cases, I can I can probably fill in a couple of different airplanes that uh, something went wrong for the very same reasons you just described. I have a saying that I apply to my general aviation flying, and it's that no one has invented a new and clever way of crashing an airplane in a long, long time. So a lot of safety is just avoiding the things that we know are bad news. Right. <laughs> All right. This has been great. It's so interesting stuff. An airplane that I, I've seen, I've, I've walked around in museums, but not very familiar with its flight test history. So thank you for sharing some of that with us. And I want to ask you, because I ask everybody who comes on the podcast, you, you've written a couple of books, you had a lot of time to think about things like this. So share one pearl of wisdom that you think would benefit our listeners. A pearl of wisdom. Well, I think for me, it's been to be a lifelong learner. Um, if you're in our business, um, you should read uh, maybe an aviation history book or a technical paper, because most likely somebody's already done something very similar to what you're doing. And Hint, hint, there's a kind of a neat book called The Supersonic Bone out there, if that interests you. Um, no, I think that attending professional events like uh, the SFT Symposium, I was up at the one in London, Ontario back in October, SETP, the Flight to Safety Committee, those are fantastic. Talk to experienced colleagues who've been there and done that. Um, I think another thing is expanding your flying skills. Um, do you have a glider certificate? What about a seaplane pilot certificate, a tailwheel endorsement, you know, flying, putting a new kind of airplane in your logbook? Or then there's my favorite, which is, have you ever flown the, the Fisk approach in the Oshkosh during air venture? <laughs> you know, expanding, expanding your aviation and, and really stretching yourself out. If you're flying, you know, high-performance military aircraft, uh, try a light airplane with a tailwheel for a change. Right. Um, yeah, I think that if you stop learning, you really should stop leading teams, stop managing projects, no longer do engineering, flying, testing, things like that. I think that uh, being uh, a lifelong learner is really intimately connected with uh, proficiency and professionalism in those areas. Right. Well, definitely wise words. So, Ken, thank you for that. And again, I also want to thank you for volunteering. And I just want to share with our listeners the, the sort of complicated process you had to go to to get on the podcast, uh, which was uh, you listened to the podcast, you looked at the email address to send in a comment or feedback, and you sent an email saying, I have an interesting story. Uh, would you say that pretty much covers the complex process you followed to get on the podcast? Oh, well, there was, there was a few pages of application yeah. and pre-screening <laughs> and all that, but I think it narrowed down to exactly what yeah. you said. Uh, all right, Ken, thanks so much for taking time out to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Great insights from Ken Katz. And if you want to know more, you can pick up Ken's book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber. I know many of you are probably asking yourselves, hey, I haven't seen a flight test safety fact in a little while. I wonder what's going on with that. Well, not to fear. 
June will bring you a new edition of that from our editor, Mark Jones. And if that's not exciting enough, next month's edition of this podcast will feature a record number of guests, a flawlessly executed, odds-defying mass roll call, and the answer to the question you have all been asking yourselves, how many workshops has Pete Donath really attended? Trust me, you don't want to miss it. So until next month, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com. the number two, climb.com.